House Flipping HQ Podcast, episode 19. This is the House Flipping HQ Podcast. Giving you the strategies, techniques, and inside secrets of house flipping from today's top house flipping experts. House Flipping flipping HQ. Your ultimate house flipping resource for intelligent real estate investing and financial freedom. Let's get flipping with your host, Justin Williams. It's a beautiful day. Oh, 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 don't let it get away. It's a beautiful day. Oh, 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 don't let it get away. Oh, shoot. Is this thing on? Oh, man. Oh, man. (laughs) You know, I've always dreamed of singing in front of thousands of people. And now I finally got my chance. Yeah, that's the only reason I really started this podcast. I just, I wanted the chance to sing in front of thousands of people and I had to figure out a way to get people to actually listen to me. So there you have it, my debut of my amazing singing performance. Hopefully many more to come. So in case you don't know, this is the second part of the Rick Solis interview. So if you did not listen to the first part yet, then go back and listen to episode 18 real quick and then come back over and listen to the second part of the Rick Solis interview. And this, in this session, uh, we cover some amazing stuff on one of the, the best parts is, is how we talk about appraisals and how to go about doing an appraisal when the appraisal comes up, when you're selling a property and also what to do, how to rebuttal appraisal if you need to do that. And this alone had probably in 2013 uh, made or saved us over $100,000 at at least. I can't measure it exactly because you never know exactly where the appraisals would have come in, but has made all the difference in our business. So definitely a crucial part of your your housekeeping business is understanding appraisals. So hope you get a ton out of it. Also, at the end of this episode, I will be announcing finally the winners for the Robert Fragoso and Ryan Scala competition. Uh, so I know many of you are have been waiting patiently and anxiously for those. So I will get those to you after the episode. Last of all, I wanted to let everybody know that we are tentatively planning a webinar for next Thursday, January 16th, to let everybody know uh, more details about the Mastermind uh, Group program thingamajig that we are going to be launching on February 1st. I know a lot of you have been asking for the details. Uh, We are working on those and we're going to deliver those. The plan is next Thursday. Uh, we are we want to make sure we don't have any you know technical issues that come up. But that is the plan. If you are interested in that, go to housefoopinghq.com/mastermind and give us your name and email, and we will send you updates on that and any other information we have on the mastermind group. Alrighty, and with that. I give you the one, the only, the king of real estate investment appraisals, Mr. Rick Solis. Let's talk a little more about appraisals. We all have to deal with appraisers. Now, first off, you mentioned as an appraiser, those are some of the things you do. Do most appraisers look at that or? No, most appraisers, most, and I would say over 99% of them don't ever sell a home. So they're never looking at what's going to happen in the future. They're never concerned about what's going to be down the road. They don't need to worry about that. They're only looking at today. So what is it worth right now? And most appraisers are are looking in the rearview mirror. So they're not focused so much on listings or pendings. They're only looking at what's closed. So I was actually, I'm a much better appraiser now that I sell houses because I, you know, I have a, now that I've. I've bought stuff, I've sold stuff, I've been the landlord, I've been the appraiser. I, I see all areas of the the transaction. But when I was just appraising houses, you know, I just I didn't have the concept of, you know, yeah, all the comparables are the highest sales are two hundred thousand and there's hey, somebody's gonna be able to buy a, a house just like mine for two hundred grand because there's only two on the market and they're both two twenty or higher. 
most appraisers, in fact, all of them won't even consider that stuff. They're really just focused on what are the closed sales. Yeah. And that's, and that's why you get low appraisals. I mean, that, that in a nutshell. And that's so interesting because agents are that same way for the most part. And you would think that naturally people would see, hey, there's value added here because these are fixed up. But I didn't. Yeah, as an investor, you learn that. But it's interesting how people in that field don't really learn that. I know it's really fascinating. I'm trying to figure it out still. But <laughs> really, really, those rules are dictated by the lender. So no matter what the appraiser thinks, the lender has their guidelines. And you'll never convince an underwriter sitting at a desk, you know, somewhere totally. And they've never sold a house. They don't have a clue about any of that stuff. You'll never convince her that the highest sales in that neighborhood are 200 grand. You listed your house for 220 and you got 47 offers within a week at 220 or higher. They don't care about any of that. They're only focused on what was that close sale, you know, and the close sale was 200,000. So that is why, and you know, they have that kind of mentality and they've kind of pounded that in the appraisers over the years. So appraisers just kind of live by that as well. So that's why you have trouble appraisal value problems when market values are rapidly increasing and you're getting a lot of offers. There's just no way to adequately prove that to the person that's going to lend you the money. And if you were lending your money, you could be more like them as well. Yeah. I mean, if you're writing a check to cover that deal, you'd only be looking at the closed stuff. You wouldn't care about, you know, what's on the market or how many offers they had on the property. Yeah. So just to make sure everyone's clear, the reason why we care so much about appraisals and appraisers is because we have to deal with them on essentially every single selling transaction. Anytime I go to sell a property, uh, you know, 95% of the time, there's going to be an appraisal. Uh, the buyer who's buying the property is going to want to have an appraisal or, or their lender is the one who's going to want to have an appraisal to check the value of the property to make sure they're not paying more for the property than what it's worth. And these are issues, as Rick knows, that we deal with all the time. I have, fortunately, we've gotten pretty good. Actually, Rick is one of the people who's taught me how to uh, do a good job of getting of working with appraisers and appraisals. But we have taken, even recently, you know, we've taken a couple $20,000 haircuts on price reduction because our appraisal came in low. Now we still made money, fortunately, but $20,000 less is quite a bit. So That's a lot. That's most people, most investors lately don't even say they're making $20,000 on a deal. So to lose 20 is just a heartache. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the truth is we ended up selling them for more than we anticipated when we bought them. So I don't look at it as we lost that much money. I look at it as we were able to push the value. And then, but some of them, you know, we, we do get, we just had one, Vanessa told me yesterday that, you know, we thought we were going to sell this thing for 260. We sold it for 305. Yeah, that, <laughs> I wouldn't mind losing money. Yeah, and the appraisal came in at 290. So we were stoked. I was hoping for 270, 275, came in at 290. But once again, even the 290 was because of things we've learned from you. So. What, how can you work with these appraisers? Like if you're selling a house, Rick, and how do you handle the appraisal? So you're selling a house, the appraiser is ready to do the appraisal. Do you just say, okay, good, good luck. Here's the combo. Get over there, have fun. Uh, how do you handle that? You know, let me just go back to that deal where you sold for 290 though, and or 305 and you sold for 290. Just to, was that an FHA buyer on that? Do you remember? I, you know, I, Vanessa handles all that. I don't even know. I'm pretty hands-off with, <laughs> I can make sure some, we're making money. <laughs> those, just over that before I move on to the appraisal thing, but on that kind of situation, I would rather carry back a $15,000 second uh-huh. at like 1% interest, you know, due in like, like 10 years huh. on that deal. So I would have tried to wedge that in. So I got the whole 305. <laughs> really good idea. Because, and even if the payment's like 10 bucks a month, if, yeah. if they're frantically wanting that house. They'll do that. Yeah. And I mean, you're going to get your 15 grand sooner or later. Yeah. I would, you know, try to get better terms, maybe five years. And That's 5%. really a good idea. And on, on this one, I may not do that just because I really feel like we got an incredible, but there are times when I feel like, man, like we, you know, it really should have appraised for that. Right. So I yeah, love that. I try to get technique. that though. I try to get the sellers to the, I try to get the buyers to just pay above the appraised value, which yeah. is usually what happens. And yeah. that's how market values really increase. The buyers will pay more than it's appraised for. Or I try to carry a second if I can. FHA, I think, won't let you do that. Okay, that's mind. good to know. So yes, number one, just so everyone knows, we will, if the appraisal does not come in, we don't just say, okay, no, we always, in fact, even when they make the offers, if we have several offers, 
uh, usually we will be more apt to take one if they are willing to remove the appraisal contingency um, than if they are not. So, but I like that tip that you gave. <laughs> I like that tip that you gave. <laughs> my, my daughter just came in, so Rick and I were, were laughing. I'm like waving her off. Uh, hey, Brilliant, close the door, sweetie. Close the door. Uh, whatever. So, but I love the tip that you gave, Rick. I never thought about that, about having them carry back that loan, and then you eventually will get that money somehow. That's fantastic. And even maybe you don't start at 1%, maybe you start at, you know, 6 five. or 7% or 5 yeah, 5 6 or 7%. And, and if you really want your money out of that, just give me a call. I'll give you five grand for that $15,000 loan. I'll, I'll buy it through my retirement account. I'd, I'd be happy to get that. Uh, the other thing is, when that comes in low at 290 and you sold for 305, I, as an appraiser, I will go through that appraisal that the buyer has with fine tooth comb and find the mistakes. And I'll try to put some sort of rebuttal together. And a lot of times I can get that bumped up from 290 maybe to 295 or 300 grand. So I, I want to get into your rebuttal layer. That's actually amongst Southern California investors, everybody. Rick Solis is pretty famous for this his rebuttal letter <laughs> i don't want to do rebuttal letters for anybody no 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 but, i'm not saying you're going to do them i'm just saying you can give us some tips on them but well yeah course, i would hire an appraiser that you knew that's you know very you know somebody that's really good not me but somebody else <laughs> yeah. and i pay them a couple hundred bucks to go through that appraisal line by line and try to find the mistakes because there's i mean appraisers we have to put in hundreds almost like a thousand pieces of information into each report there's dozens of mistakes in there, and sometimes they're really big mistakes that make a huge difference. So I would pay somebody to do that, and I would pay somebody to make sure that the appraiser selected the very best comparables that support my market value. And that's the route that I would go if my appraisal is low. Now, going back to what I would meet the what I do when I meet the appraiser um, to show my house, here's what I like as an appraiser. When I'm doing my appraisal inspections, I'll usually do three or four or five in a day. And I set them an hour and a half to two hours apart. But usually by that time I get to that last appointment, either I've had a really bad day where realtors showed up late or tenants wouldn't let me in or the key was missing out of the lockbox or I, you know, I just got lost or I got stuck in traffic or something. By the time I get to that last appointment, I'm either an hour or two early or an hour or maybe 45 minutes late. And either way, it's hard to make it to that exact time. Yeah, I don't want to space these things out so they're so far apart, though, that I'm wasting an extra three or four hours of my day. So as an appraiser, I would prefer not to meet you at the property. Yeah. I would really prefer that I can get there without meeting you there. The other reason is because when I'm doing my inspection, I know that if you meet me there, you're either one of two things. You're either walking by me, walking with me and watching my every move, Yeah. which kind of think about that. I mean, imagine you're at work and you're at your desk and picture your job. You're not a at your desk and somebody is just sitting over your shoulder watching your every move. Would you prefer that sort of situation for your everyday life or would you rather just kind of be on your own doing your own thing? So you're either watching my every move or you're sitting in the house waiting for me to finish. And either way, I know this guy wants me to get the heck out of here. So um, you know, I'm kind of rushing through right. as an appraiser. I would prefer not to meet you there or not to spend my whole time there with you. I just kind of want to get in and out. Yeah. And I don't want to have a set appointment because it's hard to, you know, it's just hard to schedule those all at once and be there at an exact time. And, and usually when I have a set appointment, a lot of real estate agents, I would say almost a fourth of them have absolutely no respect for other people's time. Right. And they will literally show up half hour late, 45 minutes late. And you know, that's going to make me late to my next appointment. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll get this call like 10 minutes in, Hey, I'm running late, but I'm just like five minutes away. I'll be there in five minutes and boom, they're there like 35 minutes well, later. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So when I get that call, I literally tell them, okay, well, it's 1230 right now. Our appointment was for 1215. You know, I will wait till 1245 and then I've got to go and get to the next appointment. Yeah. And when you lay it on the line like that, they'll tell you, well, I probably won't get there till one. Yeah. But I get that on literally about a fourth of them. And it's usually the newer ones yeah. that just, they don't care about anybody's time. They just kind of don't care. So I prefer as an appraiser not to meet you there. And if I do meet you there, my best appointment is I will meet you at the property. And if it's one of my early ones in the day, 
let's say, here's what I do if I'm the seller and I'm going to meet an appraiser. I mean it for them. I will tell them, hey, I'll meet you at the property. I'll let you in and I'll unlock it. I'll let them in and then I go. Okay. Um, but I do hand them a packet of information. The packet of information is usually page one of every offer that I received. So if I receive you know, 47 offers above the listing price, I will give them page one of every offer. And then there'll be a, just a brief letter that tells them something to the effect of, I know as an appraiser, the lenders are kind of you know clamping down on you guys and making it as hard as possible to you know appraise these properties in an increasing market, and that the closed sales might not reflect what is really occurring. But these I have these forty-seven buyers that all raise their hand and were willing to pay you know two ten for this house or more, and so I'll give them page one of each offer. I'll give them that letter, and then I will also. I will do my own search and I'll look for some comparables. And um, when I'm searching for comparables, I, I mentioned that I had a, um, a one-page handout on how to find comparables. And I gave you a copy of that to give to your podcast listeners. Yes, we, um, we'll include that in, in the show notes. So I'll meet them there and I will hand them a list of, you know, five or six or seven or even like 10 or 15 really good closed sales that are very similar to my property. Similar age, similar lot size, same city, similar neighborhood that closed recently. But I'll also go the extra mile. And if it's an area where prices are going up, there's usually, you know, quite a few pending sale comparables that are in escrow. And I will call, I will get those pending sale comparables and I'll call those listing agents to find out when those are going to close. And, you know, I'll try to sweet talk them out of giving me the sales price. If I find some of those that really support my value, we'll make sure the appraiser knows about that because the appraiser's not going to call and get that information. But I'll tell them, hey, here's this pending sale that's going to close today and it's going to close for 210 grand. They're not going to find that. And the agent that sells that deal might not update that MLS for three or four days. So yeah. they might finish the appraisal before they even get that information. And that could so be a twenty thousand dollar difference right there. <laughs> and that is really the best comp. If they yeah. close today, the day they're doing the appraisal and it sold for two ten and all the close sales, the other close sales are at two hundred grand, that one that closed today is the very best comparable they're not gonna find. So I give them that. And then I also um by doing that amount of effort and work, they know that I'm gonna be going over their appraisal with a fine tooth comb. Yeah. You know, so if they just kind of grab the first three sales they have and bring it in low, there's gonna be some drama for them. So I don't tell them that, but just by the amount of effort I did in my packet, they know that there will be some drama. So I will either email that to them and give them a lockbox code so they can go at their convenience, or I will meet them there with that packet of information. I won't be late. I'll be there. And I will hand them that stuff. When they're there, you know, I'll talk to them briefly. You know, I'll try to chat up with them a little bit. If they're really friendly and talkative, I'll stick around. But if they're not an appraiser like me, that's just kind of just, you know, it's just a job. They just want to get in and out and finish and move on to the next one as quickly as possible. I can see that too. And I don't try to you force them thing. into a long conversation. Yeah, I like that. That's awesome, Rick. That's, uh, that's perfect. And that's exactly what we do based off of what we've learned from you. And I'll tell you what. I can't measure it exactly, but I guarantee us doing that last year made us over a hundred extra thousand dollars. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's, you know, five deals for a lot of investors. I mean, that's, you don't want to give that away too. I mean, that's a lot of times you can walk away with a $20,000 profit or a $40,000 profit. And I look at that extra chunk of profit as almost another deal I, I don't have to do. Exactly. So we've actually trained our agents to do this as well. So if an agent is ever selling a property for us, we expect the same packet and all these details from them. If it's a property that Vanessa, my assistant, is selling, then she'll do this. And I've been amazed at some of the properties that I'm like, no, it's not going to praise, not going to end in the praises. So we, we still had a couple haircuts, like I said. But uh, even this last one, we thought it was going to come in at like 270. And because she showed up and was prepared, the appraiser said, look, like, I don't, it's not going to come in at value, but we're going to do everything we can. And I guarantee you that was a $20,000 uh, difference right there. So yeah, that makes a huge difference. Even if it's a $2,000 difference, it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the okay. other thing I give them though, the last thing is I give them a legitimate list of upgrades that I did with um, not my costs, 
of what I spent. So I might spend two bucks a square foot to paint the inside. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll maybe double what I spent, but I still try to make it fairly legitimate. I've met some investors that will, you know, they'll have a thousand square foot house and they'll hand me their list and they'll say they spent $20,000 painting the inside of a thousand. I mean, they have me just ridiculous numbers and I don't do that, but I do inflate what I spend because I'll try to come up with what I think an appraiser, you know, just hiring some contract on the street would have paid. Yeah. And that's the numbers I come up with. So you, you're so, coming up with um, the amount that it would cost a normal person to do these repairs, which makes sense because you're selling yes. the property to, the, to a homeowner, right? Here, I'm helping you justify <laughs> what you're doing. So you're, I, I do that, but I also, um, you know, as an appraiser, we get paid the same amount of dollars, whether we spend two hours on the appraisal or 10. So most appraisers try to do it as quickly as possible. They want to get in and out. They want to finish that report. And usually they spend five or six hours. They don't want to spend any extra minute on the deal. So I give them the list where I kind of break down everything that I did Yeah. because they might've missed that. Oh, I put granite counters in the, the bath. I fully remodeled the bathroom, including granite counters. They didn't spot that. I changed all the windows out in the house. You know, I, I did the mini blind, you know, I'll, I'll list everything I did that they definitely won't notice fences. Appraisers never look at fences. Yeah. But hey, I spent you know twenty five hundred bucks replacing all the fences. So I'll put you know even if I did you know little stuff like thousand bucks on sprinklers, I'll list all that and I'll hand that to them. And you know that's in my packet. And then you know if I'm an appraiser and I'm looking at this house that has thirty thousand dollars of upgrades, and I'm trying to compare it to a house that's thirty thousand dollars that doesn't have those upgrades, there's a difference. I can just that'll help me justify that difference. So that's- absolutely, and hopefully they're taking that list. And they should be writing that list and putting it right in the appraisal. Okay, well, the guy upgraded and here's what he did. He painted the inside and, you know, some appraisers put down the prices that uh, investors spent on that stuff. And they're supposed to reflect the, the renovations you did in the report. So it's it's helpful for them. And, you know, yeah, it's going to take you a half hour of time. But, you know, actually putting together that whole packet, if you did it properly, probably two hours. But, you know, two hours to make an extra at least you're gonna, minimum going to make a couple grand, but yeah, you're probably going to make 10, you know, or 20 10 or 20 or something. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, Rick. So, I mean, you basically told us how to double our profits with the same amount of deals. I mean, really, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, when I'm doing an appraisal, if I have my comparables that are like 195, 198, and 200, and your, your packet just... So, I'm sorry, for the packet of information I give the appraiser, I want to give them the list of renovations. I want to give them the best comparables that I found that they might have missed because maybe there's one really high sale and they missed it. Yeah. I want to give them legitimate comparables. So I don't want to give them, and sometimes investors will meet me and the comps they give me is one sale that was four miles away, one that sold three years ago, one that's double the square footage of my house, and then one that's a brand new house in my house and their house is like built in the 50s. I don't give them those comps. I, I give them trash. You know, similar properties, and I give them uh, some pending sales, and then I give them uh, all my offers. And if you give them that stuff, you meet them at the property, and you either let them in or you email them all that stuff, and you just give them a lockbox combo. I mean, that's really the best way to go. Yeah, and the truth is, I mean, your house is worth what those other homes are because yours is probably upgraded, so it is the value is one of the best ones. So you're just defending what your home is already worth. So absolutely. And that stack of offers is really your best defense. I mean, you literally are showing these all, had all, all the, if you have a offers in a short period of time now, if it's been on the market for six months and you've got two offers, well, then I'm don't include those. <laughs> then I wouldn't bother. To. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. So that's huge going into the appraisal. Now, what happens when you get the appraisal back? Let's talk about that. Now, a lot of times doing what you said will help that appraisal come in where you need it to be. What happens when you just have an appraiser who just did not do his job, didn't take a look at what you gave him, and the appraisal comes in way lower than it should? What do you do then? Well, that's the situation where I hire somebody to either, either I would get really good at doing my own rebuttal letters. So I would go through that appraisal with a fine tooth comb. And really what I would do is I would pull up all the comparables that he used in his report. I'd pull them up on MLS. And I would look at all of the items he said. So maybe he says that comparable had a pool and he deducted five grand from the sales price of that comparable to have to reflect the pool. 
I've seen times where they'll they'll make that adjustment and then I'll pull up the listing and I'll click on the photos and I'll notice it was like one of those Adobe above ground pools in the backyard that they're not supposed to give any value to. Yeah. So I would go through the comparable sale line by line for every adjustment they made or didn't make. So if my house had a new kitchen and they were adjusting, say, three or four grand for a new kitchen, but that comp didn't have a new kitchen, but he put down that it did. I'll go through the MLS to find out, did it really have it? I'll read through the comments and then I'll look through all the photos. And if he didn't, in my rebuttal letter, I'll, you know, I'll put in there that, hey, I was reviewing the MLS for comparable sale number one. It did not have a kitchen and you failed to make an adjustment for my remodel kitchen. And then, uh, you know, I noticed that you made an adjustment for a pool, but compare MLS disclosure says it did not have a pool. And here's a photograph of the above ground pool in the rear yard. You know, I'll just go line by line and I will find tons of errors on every comparable. And then there's actually, I cite chapter and verse of uh, USPAP, which is the regulations that appraisers have to adhere to. And I will point out the sections of USPAP they violated to let them know that a violation of those that USPAP, you can lose your license for. So I actually put that in my rebuttal letter. And an appraiser, if I'm an appraiser and I get a rebuttal letter and they've cited chapter and verse of USPAP that I messed up, that scares the hell out of me. 99.9% of the entire population has no idea what USPAP is. So if I'm an appraiser and I notice you as the seller are citing USPAP, I'm scared. How do you spell that? U-S-C-P-A-P, did you say? U-S-P-A-P. It's a very boring, dry document that only appraisers deal with. Nobody else. And it's just almost in a totally irrelevant document, but there's things in there that if you violate it, it just can make your life hell. So um, if I didn't know USPAP and I didn't want to take all the time to deal with that, I would pay an appraiser. You know, it's probably going to take them four hours to go through that appraisal and put up a good rebuttal letter, but I would pay them, you know, two or 300 bucks to do, do that for me. Sometimes when I was doing those letters, I would say about 75% of the time, the original appraiser would increase the market value. Or if they wouldn't, we could get the underwriter to look at my rebuttal letter, see all the errors that guy did, and they'll either order another appraisal and kick out the first one, or they will get on the appraiser to reevaluate a situation. So just to make sure we're clear, you originally, you'll send that letter yeah, to the 20%, appraiser. Yeah. You'll send that letter to the appraiser first, correct? Or who do you send if this you letter that, to? you do that, you're in a world of hurt. Okay, so don't, don't send it to the appraiser. Okay, good. No, that's good. Yeah, I'm sorry if I... I no, I you didn't say that. I just wanted to make sure we understand. You don't want any kind of like, I'm putting pressure on the appraiser. You don't want that at all. That'll okay. bring the world of problems into your life. So who do you send this rebuttal letter to? I send that to my real estate agent. The, so the listing agent, the buyer's agent, and the loan officer. And if I have any contact with the underwriter loan processor, they get a copy too. I want them to forward that to the appraiser. Got it. So I don't want to be the person, you know, trying to, to influence the appraiser. I, but I want them to get that letter. Okay. So they get that letter and then they send it to the appraiser and the appraiser makes the adjustment or who, how does it, how does yeah. what happens from there? The appraiser reconsiders his value. Really that letter is not from me to the appraiser. It's from me to the underwriter. And I'm saying, look at all these mistakes the appraiser made. And the guy could lose his license because he violated this, this, and that. Um, so I sent it to them. Okay. And you sent it to them and then they sent it to the appraiser. And so can the appraiser just go in and change it? Or what is he, does he have to, is there a process he has to go through to yeah. change it? Him to do, uh, him to change it. Usually if you have to change that, so he'll go and he'll correct the errors he made on those comparables. And then he might change out one or two comparables with the ones you provided. And then he will alter the, the market value um, based on the new information. Uh, a lot of times they'll do that. If it's, um, you know, I think the, the ones you have the least amount of chance getting that done are the VA appraisers. Because those guys are really old and they really don't care. And they just, I mean, they've been at it so long. VA cannot kick them off the list. And most of them are just been at it. And as an appraiser, our whole life is justifying our number and supporting it. So once we come up with the value on a property, everybody is sliming us from every direction. Yeah. The lender thinks it's too high. The underwriter thinks it's too high. The buyer thinks it's too high. The seller thinks it's too low. The realtor thinks it's too low. So we are trying to justify and support our number all day long. And that's our whole job is, yeah. and, and we're getting slammed from every direction. It's never in those 12,000 appraisals that I've done, the number's never been the right number. <laughs> I'm just never happy with the number. 
it's always the wrong number. So you kind of develop a thick skin after a while of that. And you're just like, you know what? The number's the number and I'm not going to change it. And that's, that's how a lot of people I'm are. Happy. Just, you did some appraisals for houses we got loans on from the Norris Group and I was happy with those. So good job. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, most people aren't happy. With the person lending the money is always like, you know, if I meet the investors, at a Norse group, like a seminar or something, the investor will always tell me, you know, I sold my house like $10,000 more than your appraised value. I'll always get that comment. Oh, yeah. They'll never tell me I sold it below that value. But yeah. then if I'm meeting the person lending the money, they're always like, well, that appraisal is a little aggressive. You know, that they're always thinking it's too high. But, you know, I, you just, I just thought it was right on. I mean, I just think since you're an appraiser who understands added value, I thought you you hit it. So yeah, the market might go up. You might sell it for more. You're, yeah, it's never going to be right on. You don't have a crystal ball. No. But you're... Absolutely. Okay, so let's say that the appraiser does not adjust his value. What do you do then? At that point, you have only a couple options. Um, usually, I will try to get to the underwriter to get them to kick out that first appraisal. And I'm at that point, I'm pointing out so many mistakes just to let them know that this thing just, we need to eliminate this and we need to go to, for appraisal number two. Many times when a lenders get multiple appraisals though, they go with, so they'll get three appraisals and their fallback is to just go with the lowest of the three. Yeah. So I don't want that situation. I want them to eliminate the first appraisal yeah. and agree to just start over with appraisal number two. Okay. That works maybe half the time. More than likely though, the deal is probably dead and I will bail out of a bad deal or a deal that's not working out. I will jump out so quick and go to offer number two really fast. Yeah. Probably sometimes faster than I should, but I've been in too many escrows that 45 day escrow turned into a 90 day escrow turns into a 120 day escrow and then it still falls apart. So I'm of that mindset that, you know, the first sign of a problem, I'm jumping out, moving on to the next buyer. Yeah. But that's probably not the best way to go. You probably should fight for Well, what while. we would probably do in that situation is I would tell the buyer, I'd say, look, we won't take this offer. I mean, at the appraised price, we're not going to reduce our amount. You can either come up with the additional money or we will try to rebuttal this. But while but I'm telling you right now, I'm moving on, like you said, to my second offer. We can get this resolved before then. Great. If not then sorry. So <laughs> I do all that. And then the last thing I also offer is, you know, Hey, if you want to try this deal with my lender, yeah, exactly. the appraisal still comes in low. Well then, you know, I'm more likely to go with, you know, a second low appraisal with a whole different lender. Then I'm usually going with the highest of those two. And then, and I am trying to get a second, if I can, a sec I'll carry back a second mortgage for that difference. If possible, it, you know, sometimes you just got to take the hit, just take the money and run. Yeah, if you're still making money. Once again, it, you know, it depends, right? I mean, if I know this house should have sold for $20,000 more and the appraisal should have come in and we were on, then I'm going to fight it a lot harder. I'm going to make it happen. If I think, you know, we got lucky and people offered way above price and, hey, we still made a ton of money, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take, take it and run. You know? <laughs> so. It also depends on the market. If we're in a market like the first half of last year, then I'm fighting for any, and you know, I've got all these backup offers and I got no problems like moving on to buyer number 20. But if we're in a slow market, like, you know, October, November, December, then I'm a lot more apt to work with that, that buyer that I've got and negotiate. And maybe they're the only offer you have. So maybe then you're going to fight everything. You're going to do whatever you can. Maybe you tell them, Hey, I'm going to reactivate the property, but if we can get this to go through before I get an offer, then great. You know? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lots of options there. Okay, that, Rick, just that information alone could help everyone double their income in 2014. So I hope so. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about financing and then we'll wrap up. So how do you finance your... I want to talk about financing, how you finance your deals, and I want to talk about um, self-directed IRAs because you, you mentioned that. How do you get your deals financed? I'm not really good at financing. So... Like I know a lot of investors, uh, one of my favorite guys, uh, investors, Steve Landis. Yeah, he's one and of my best, yeah. His job now, I mean, his whole job is, I mean, he literally spends eight hours a day just refinancing that huge pile of properties they've got. And he's dealing with mounds of paperwork on every lender. And it's just such a struggle to get to the finish line. It might take him four months and, 
you know, a three or four inch stack of paperwork to get each refi done. And he's got a lot of patience for that. And when he's done, his payment might be 300 bucks a month for a fully amortized loan on a house that I'm paying 600 bucks a month. I just don't have the temperament to do that. Like I give up really quick (laughs) when it comes to a lot of hassles. I'm just, I don't like hassles. So most of my transactions are funded with either seller financing and I'm coming up with cash. There's a few deals I've done recently where I'm taking over their loan and giving them a cash for the difference. So I'm taking their loan subject to. Uh, but can, we, can we go part, back? Can we talk really quick? I think a lot of people on the call may not know what seller. We don't talk a ton about creative financing. So a lot of people don't think understand seller financing and subject to. Can you take just one minute? And what, what is seller financing? Yeah. Um, so seller financing is the house is worth, say, 150 and I'm buying it for 120 And I'm giving the seller a $20,000 down payment. And they are going to carry back the financing. So they're going to be the bank. They're going to carry back a hundred thousand dollar loan, and I'm going to pay them say five or six percent interest only. So I I send them four or five hundred bucks a month, and I'll set that out like three to five years. And at the end of three to five years, I'll either sell a property or refinance it and pay them off. I will pay more for property, a lot more, if I can get that kind of financing. For sure, I'll pay maybe even ten percent more just because that's what I'm going to save in hard money loan costs. So the cost going up front plus the yearly interest difference. Um, there's some people that that works for. They own it free and clear and they want top dollar. Um, there's been some situations where they won't sell it for less than 120 and all the other investors are only willing to pay 100, but I will pay 120 if they'll carry the financing back because I'm really looking at this thing will carry itself much better for the next three or four years and I can sell it and make a huge profit and have nice cash flow along the way. So how do you, um, you know, bring that up with them? You know, we will offer in my, if I'm dealing direct with sellers, so they're responding to like a letter call, I will send them a letter saying, hey, I'll pay hundred grand cash. But if you're willing to carry the financing, you know, I'd put, you know, I almost send them two offers. If you're willing to accept, you know, interest payments of, you know, $500 a month, you know, uh, on your $100,000 loan for three years. And then, you know, with $20,000 down payment, at the end of three years, I'll pay you 100000 more. I mean, I'll actually light it up to where you're not selling to me for one i I'm sending you, you know, six grand a month in interest for three years. So I'm really paying you one thirty eight. You know, I'll approach it that way. And I'd say maybe one out of 10 will do that. I mean, you got to find the right situation though, where they own it free and clear. And so the benefits to you are obviously the financing. And what are the benefits to them? The benefits to them are interest on their money, interest on their loan. So they're getting, you know, I'm paying them 5%. Most people can't get that anywhere. Yep. Even most stocks don't pay that in a dividend. So if they don't need the money, they're just going to put it in the bank. They're not going to get that. The other benefit is they can postpone the tax on that sale till I pay them back that $100,000. I mean, there's tax savings along the way. So they can postpone the tax um, tax on that, you know, down the road to where maybe their income will be different. And, you know, maybe they're making a lot of money now, but if I pay this thing off in three years and that's when they have to realize the gain, you know, the tax situation can help them as well. And you mentioned that you're putting $20,000 down, but, you know, what if someone trying to buy a home, uh, seller financing, they didn't have 20000 is it possible to buy a house without putting that much money down? Oh, yeah. You could put nothing down. You could use another house with equity in it and let them put that $20,000 as, as a second on your other house. You could trade them a car for the down payment. You can even buy the house. And this is how I did it when I first started out. The house would be a junker and it needed five grand worth of work. I would do all the work. And then as soon as the house was done, then we closed escrow. So kind of sweat equity. Um, as your down payment to get that thing fixed up. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. That's more of like a lease option situation. Uh-huh. There's all kinds of things you can do. So, so people, I just want to make sure people know, don't have to have a lot of money to invest in real estate. You can, no, right? That that twenty thousand dollar down payment that I'm offering is just weak negotiation skills. Yeah, me, <laughs> you can get that for you know five grand or less. I love it. Love it. Okay, so that's, and what kind of paperwork do you need to do a seller finance deal like that? Oh, you can have everything handled through escrow. So it's really just a note, and that's a one-page form. Escrow fills out, and a deed of trust. And those are usually like a three- or four-page document. 
you know, it's like 100, 200 bucks to have escrow pair of that. All the terms held out right in the uh, the note and escrow will handle everything for you. Perfect. Okay, great. So that's, you know, so a little tidbit on seller financing. We'll get into that more in, in future calls. So let's talk about, you mentioned subject two or buying the house um, just with the, the current financing they have. How would that work? Well, I just did, in fact, I just did a subject two deal. So um, I bought a house in September on Hemlock in Hesperia. Hey, so I was going to buy a house. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been. <laughs> House is worth maybe ninety grand and needed ten thousand dollar rehab. The guy had um, a loan, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think the loan was about sixty five grand. That's a deal that most investors would have just passed on. Yeah. There's no way for that to work. He had the sixty five thousand dollar loan on there, and his payment was less than what rent would be, and it was a really good loan. It was like five percent. This wow. guy was just done with this house. Yeah, I mean, he he just couldn't deal with it. There's he didn't have the money to fix it, so he probably couldn't put it on the MLS and walk out with much. And I mean, because it wouldn't qualify for a loan the way it sat. So he's either going to have to fix it or sell it to an investor. I ended up paying him seventy-three grand, so I gave him eight grand down. Um, I think I spent about seven grand on the rehab, so I'm in it, you know, close to eighty. Uh, I took over his payments, and you know, I think the house. It's somewhere like ninety to ninety-five thousand in an area of Hesperia that's rapidly going up. You know, one or two percent a month at this point. So, for me, I just thought, you know, I can sit on this thing. I, I'm in it for you know less than fifteen grand after my rehab and the down payment. And um, you know, I think my payments five or six hundred a month. Rents house rents for seven ninety-five, and I can just let that sit there for a couple of years. And you know, ultimately sell it for. I'll probably sell that house for one fifty in the next thirty-six months. I love those kind of deals. I mean, that deal is something actually I've paid a lot more for that than I normally would pay. But, you know, that deal, I just came around the right time. I was sitting on extra money that had no place to go. And, uh, you know, I was having trouble finding stuff at that point. And that's something that everybody else was passing on and they, they just weren't interested. But How much I was happy. you bought it for? I paid 73000 73000 Yeah, that's awesome. Then you're going to ride the market up and it, it pays for itself. Uh, through the rent and, and you have you already have financing on it so you don't need to worry about any of your money or good financing too i mean the loan was probably 10 years old so every month it's going down you know i think the payments five to six hundred bucks a month but the loan is going down like 200 a month oh great i mean that thing's you know just every year i'm say, i'm building up 2500 bucks in uh appreciation or, i mean uh, just in paying down the loan so really quickly how do you do a subject to deal i mean i'm taking over someone else's financing is the bank okay with that the bank is not okay with that they are not happy about that so you first thing you don't notify the bank you don't um the bank is going to find out eventually um, but you i'm trying to put that off as long as possible so you don't notify the bank it's better if they don't have an impound account because once the bank gets that tax statement showing a different owner that's kind of a red flag but, it, you know, sometimes they catch it, sometimes they don't. But um, this one does have an impound account. So uh, I probably will get caught eventually. But here's what I do. I don't alter his insurance at all. So I still pay his insurance. And then I get my own insurance, an own separate insurance policy. You know, I spend less than 300 bucks a year for insurance. I get it through Safeco. I use a really good broker up in Hesperia. So paying for double insurance is not great, but that's part of the price. The other thing is, the loan is serviced by a local bank that's kind of close to me. And I literally just walk in the payment each month. Um, I was taking in a cashier's check at first. And um, I don't have this guy still getting the statements because he wants to make sure I'm paying it. So I don't have current statements, but I would take in a copy of an old statement. So I take in a copy of the old statement, cashier's check. I walk into the bank every month and I haven't had a problem. And it's been, we bought in September and, you know, I'm going to walk in a payment, you know, in a couple of days. So it's been four months. So the mortgage stays in his name, right? His name. It's still his mortgage. That is a little hard to negotiate because if I don't pay that on time, he's in trouble. He's going to mess up his credit. Part of the way I was able to get that done is when we were buying it, we paid a couple mortgage payments in advance. So he knew we were, I mean, we had money in the deal. Yeah. We had to fix the property. I mean, he knows if we don't make the payments on that and they foreclose, we're going to lose 15 grand. So he knows we're motivated, but he has taken a risk. And, and he was, but he was going to hard. He was going to probably lose the house anyway. Yeah, he didn't have the money to make the payment, so he was going to lose it. 
I'm making it on time. So if anything, I'm cleaning up his credit. You're helping clean up his credit. Um, the mortgage stays in his name. Now, I understand this, but a lot of people listening may not. If the mortgage still is his name, how do you own the house? The house is, he deeded the house to me. So I still own the house, but the loan is in his name. It's kind of like if you owned a car and you had a, a loan, the bank on your car, but you sold somebody your car and the loan was still on the car. The person you sold the car to owns the car now, but they still have to make the payments to the, the bank that um, loaned you the money. It's that type of situation. Now you mentioned like not, you know, that hopefully the bank doesn't catch it, but I mean, is this illegal? It's not illegal. Yeah. I mean, they can call the loan and that's what it's called. Um, they call the loan once they find out that it's been transferred. Most times they won't. So maybe one out of a hundred will call the loan. And if that happens, I'm going to have to refinance it or sell it. But you have to know that that's a possibility. There's a good chance, you know, that they're going to catch me on that tax thing. Yeah. Um, they're going to get that tax bill. We closed it in September. So the taxes were already out for this year. So the bill that's due in February was already mailed to them in his name. So hopefully they won't catch it. Yeah. Um, but when the next tax bill comes back in September of next year, that's when it might be a red flag. Okay. So there's nothing wrong. There's nothing illegal. It's totally legitimate. It's only that part of the contract is title transfers. Then they have the right to call the loan. The right, but not the obligation. And at some point, um, at some point, the bank loses those rights. So if they don't exercise those rights within a certain period of time, um, they lose the right to do that. I'm not really up on all of that. Yeah. But I know that. I mean, if they don't do it within a certain amount of time, and they just accept my payments, at some point, they just they're stuck with that. And for the most part, even if they're getting their payment, they probably really don't care. I mean, yeah, they don't. They're know? getting paid, right? If they're not getting paid, yeah. then they have process in place for that to take care of that. So absolutely. So is there is there like an agreement that you sign? So you get the, the uh, I'm sorry, about to say deed of trust. You get the deed signed over in your name. He still has the mortgage or the deed of trust in his name. You're making yes. payments to his bank. He lets you know where to make the payments. Do you have an agreement with him? Yeah, I have a separate agreement with him that I will make the payments. And if not, um, I'll deed the property back to him. Okay. Um, and... I would actually, if I hit it, hit a snag on that, I would deed it back to him. Many investors probably wouldn't, but I don't really foresee a problem, you know, yeah. me making the payments. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't concerned with that. I don't really know how he would enforce that on his end, but it's just probably something to make him more, you know, sleep a little better. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So we got seller financing subject to what else are you doing to purchase these properties? What other kind of financing are you using? Well, most of the time, um, going back to a, a deal I did and, um, we did, did a purchased a house in, and this is a perfect situation. We bought a house in Hesperia in November on Capri street. We paid, um, 94,000 bucks for that house, probably worth about $1,000 rehab. We got a loan, a hard money loan from the Norris group. And that covered most of the purchase price. We were going to be about 19 grand short to cover the closing cost, um, the little bit of down payment required by the Norris Group, and the rehab. So the way we structured that is, I mean, because you, know, you can't just keep coming up with $19,000 checks every time you you buy a house. So the way we structured that was, um, I have another investor I partner up with on stuff. She bought this house in her corporation, so she was the actual buyer. I was not the buyer. Um, she got the loan from the Norris Group. I funded a second mortgage on that property through my retirement account for 19 grand. So she gets a first from Norris Group, um, a second from me for 19 grand. And on my $19,000, she pays me 8% interest. And then I get half of the profits when we sell. I love that, Rick. <laughs> and that's part of your agreement as a lender. Well, look at it from, and a lot of people look at that and they go, ah, oh, man, that deal sucks. But really, I'm the one that found the deal. Yeah, so I found the deal um, without, and I put up the money. So without my me finding the deal and me putting up the money, she wouldn't have that. Who, who would that give her for? Her. I think that's a great deal for both of you. <laughs> well, most people look at that transaction and they get all, whatever side of the deal they're on, they're pissed off. They're like, no, nah, I would never do that. I would, yeah. I found the deal. There's no way I'm giving up okay, half I got the profit okay, to somebody. I got it. I got it. Um, in her possession, they're probably looking at, well, I have to give you half of my equity just for you loaning me the down payment. But in her position, she's going to get, we're going to sell that house in probably three years, make a hundred grand. We'll each make 50. 
So she'll get fifty thousand dollars with no money out of pocket. Yeah. All she really has to do is manage it. Yeah. Manage the rehab. Man. Okay, we're almost done. Almost done. <laughs> oh, no worries. Okay. So you said all she has to do is manage it. Yeah, she manages it. Um, and and then our exit strategy. I really like the exit strategy because. So let's say thirty six months from now we sell this property for two fifty, and when it's all said and done, we walk out with a fifty thousand dollars profit each. Okay. Her half of that property, her half of that sale was two fifty, but she only owned half the property, so she only really has to. She's going to take her fifty grand and she's going to ten thirty one exchange into another property. She only has to buy a property for half of that sales price of two fifty, so she only has to buy a hundred twenty five thousand dollars house to satisfy ten. 31 exchange okay. and she'll be putting 50 grand down on that 50 grand that she would not have had if we didn't do this deal. Yeah. So that's where she goes. Her 50 grand will be tax free, you know, exchanged into something that'll provide very nice cash flow for her. On my end, I'll get my 19 grand back plus uh, I'm getting 8% interest on that each month, yep. which is like 125 bucks a month. Yeah. And then at the end, I will get my 19 grand back plus my $50,000 profit all rolled into my retirement account. Yeah. I can take that, which is almost 70 grand and put that into, you know, a nice 10% mortgage that throws off seven grand a year in interest. And you don't have to pay taxes on any of that. I mean, at least that profit at that moment later, you may have to. I don't. And I can keep growing that (laughs) or I can take that 70 grand and do three more of these deals. And I can keep growing that until there's a big enough amount in my retirement account that I can start pulling it out and living off that. And I'll have to pay tax on it then. But if I did it a different way, instead of, you know, just sold the house and took my 10 grand in profit right now, you know, I'd spend that 10 grand so fast. Yeah. But but by postponing it three years and doing it through retirement account, I'm, I'm sheltering 50 grand that I can invest for you know, the rest of my life. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's kind of, you talked about your retirement account. Now, a lot of people may think they have a retirement account. And they have to invest it with, you know, Schwab or, or whoever. I don't even know if I'm, I'm not a retirement. I'm not a uh, investment guy. So I don't know if I said that right. But no, no, I understand. Yeah. Typical retirement accounts are either stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Um, that's through your banks. And that's through, um, through like Charles or brokerage accounts. And that's where most retirement accounts go. I read a book really early on. I, I was always a big reader of books. Whenever I have a problem, I need to figure out, I just go get a book. And one of the books I read was actually, and I give you a list of my the books that made the biggest impact on my life. We're going to include those in the show notes as well. We have three documents from Rick, um, appraisal adjustments, how to select sale comparable, the books that he recommends. And we're going to include all those in an attachment in the show notes. I mean, it's like a little mini course right here. Great information. So Go to com slash episode. Oh, man, is this episode 16 or 17? Anyway, I'll tell you, everyone, in the <laughs> I, I do a little outro at the end of this, Rick, after we're done. So I'll let everybody know where to go to get that. But great information here and a great reference for, for you to have. Just information we don't have time to go through in detail on, on the call. But this is, I really appreciate you sending this over, Rick. So. Oh, thanks. Well, one of the books I read in there was, um, I think it's called Wealth Without Risk. And it, the guy, and you know, at the time I'm like 22, 23 years old, I'm an appraiser, I'm making pretty good money. And he really showed me that if I put 10% of my income away into a retirement account, he showed me how to build that up and how to retire, you know, within like 20, 25 years with a huge cash flow out of that thing. And he, there's ways to do it without paying penalties for early withdrawals. So most people look at a retirement account and think, uh, I can't withdraw until I'm 59 or I'm going to pay, pay penalties. So they don't look at, you know, there's ways around that without paying that penalty. There's ways to do it and there's, it's legal. So there's ways in the, right in the tax code. So my goal was always to put most, if not all of my wealth building money into my retirement account. So, and that, again, that's on that list that I, I gave you with the books that it tells you exactly how to set it up. You go to equitytrust.com is the company I use, but there's also, there's quite a few retirement account companies that will, um, I think there's Udirect and there's Intrust. There's probably about a dozen of them where you set the account up with them and you can invest in things that aren't stocks or bonds or mutual funds. You can invest in real estate or mortgages or, you know, other, other things. So, and that's called a self-directed IRA. And that's where I have my IRA. And 
I usually do this kind of transaction where I told you where I put, you know, I'll put up all the money that's needed above the hard money loan and, uh, you know, I get half the profit when we sell. I usually don't take title real estate because um, that, that makes your retirement account a little more complicated. Uh, it's harder to get loans um, on properties held by a retirement account. And if you do get a loan, you have to pay um, tax on that and file extra tax returns if you have um, real estate assets in your retirement account, loans on them. So I, I try to avoid that. And the way I avoid that is by being the lender on the deal and having a recorded option for half of the equity uh, recorded on the property. That, that's how I get around it. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people do, a lot of options in their real estate uh, retirement accounts. That's awesome. So yeah, we have a self-directed IR. We actually have like a self-directed 401k. Anyway, they're that's even better because you can account. put way more money in yes, those. Yes, we've we've the last couple of years we've stocked socked a ton of money away into that, and it's it's amazing because we did a Roth, so we pay taxes on the money before it goes in there, and we've increased that thing exponentially to where you know, a couple of years ago we didn't have a retirement account at all, and now that thing's just huge. It's amazing at the rate of growth which you can increase it, and we won't have to pay taxes on it in the future because we've already paid those taxes ahead of time. So I mean, and you can literally. You can double those things every three years, especially if you're doing just a few real estate transactions through there. Yep. Oh, you can just you can build that so quick. Oh, it's amazing. And and when you eventually close down your company, you and you're not contributing to that 401k anymore, you can close that 401k and just roll it into a regular Roth, and yeah, you avoid all the extra tax returns and hassles of dealing with that and the extra fees. It's amazing. Uh, but that's the way to go. I did that. In fact, that's how I built mine up. I had a solo 401k. And that's the best way to go. Yeah, we, we absolutely love it. And I helped my parents. They set up one. And I have several investors that we've helped set up self-directed IRA accounts. So a couple of ways to look at this. Number one, you should look into getting your own self-directed IRA or retirement account. Number two, um, as, P, as you're out there trying to find investors, you help them set up a self-directed IRA account. And, you know, if they have a retirement account that's not self-directed, they may have a ton of money in there that they cannot use, that they're getting horrible returns on. And you can direct them to one of these companies that we've mentioned, and I'll include a couple of those in the show notes, and they can get that access to that money to the point to where they can lend it to you for your transactions. So it's just- Yeah, they can help fund your deals. Yep. Yep. So, all right, Rick, man, we covered a lot of ground here. I- Appreciate your time. I know we've been on a while. Rick, you know, he's not kind of like Ryan Scala. He's not a man of, uh, you kind of like to keep a low profile, like you said. I do. I do. I'm not, I'm not out there like uh, Tony Alvarez or, you know, I keep it low. Tony Alvarez is one of the guys I would be going to listen to. And if I was hitting real estate clubs right now, that, that would be the main guy I would try to follow. But yeah, I do keep a low profile. You know, I'm busy. I'm managing a bunch of properties. I've got a bunch of loans, retirement accounts. I'm an appraiser. I, I don't have a lot of extra free time. So I, I appreciate you coming on. I know uh, I first asked you if you could contribute to the blog. You're like, yeah, I'm kind of not into that. And anyway, bottom line is I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you've shared a ton of knowledge with us. And the fact that you're not out there a ton, I'm going to be able to sell this thing for a lot more. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> sell for whatever you can get. Good luck. I love your podcast. What, you, you cut out for a second. What was that? I think you're saying something oh, good sorry. about me. So I'm right, said, say it. I'm, I love listening to your podcast. I listen to all of them. So I, I was really happy to participate and I was honored to be uh, included. Oh, I didn't even know you were listening to them. So I, I appreciate that. That means a lot. To me. I was just listening to Brian's uh, today. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Hearing someone like you who's been around a long time and knows a ton of information, uh, that, that means a lot. So appreciate it, Rick. Um, yeah. Appreciate it. Have a great new year. Um, Thanks, Justin. You too. I think this is going to be a great year. I think we're going to do very well this year. I, I think so too. We're we're really pumped. So, uh, if there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know, and we will we'll talk to you soon, right? Okay. Thanks. Have a good day. All right. See <laughs> Was that something or what? You know, every time I talk to Rick, I'm just more and more impressed. I mean, the guy's just so casual and relaxed, but he's doing some incredible things. And man, if you don't walk away from this interview with some incredibly valuable nuggets, which you can take and really improve your bottom line uh, uh, this year in your house flipping or real estate investing business, then I don't know what to tell you. If you have any questions or comments, go ahead and head over to com slash episode 19. 
and Rick and or myself will be happy to answer those for you. Um, you know, I, I think Rick would get to him. You know, he's pretty chill, so it might take a little bit. But he did say that he listens to all the podcasts, so he'll probably uh, listen to this episode as well and head on over there. And I'm, I'm sure he'd be more than, than happy to help you out with, with any questions you have in regards to appraisals, evaluating properties, anything else. I mean, he's, you know, he works with a hard money lender, Bruce Norris. So any questions you have uh, regarding any of those items, I'm sure he'd be happy to answer for you. So head on over to HowSwingHQ.com slash episode 19 and leave your comments or questions in the comments section below, below the show notes. Okay, so now the moment you've all been waiting for, the announcement of the winners for the competitions we had with Ryan Scala and Robert Fergoso. First off, I want to say this was really, really, really hard. Um, and I had these guys help me out, decide who the winners were. So don't blame me. It wasn't my fault at all. And at the end of the day, it kind of came to, we narrowed it down to a handful and we had to kind of randomly select. So, um, they were all great, uh, contestants, great responses. We love you all. And yeah, hopefully we'll have some more competitions down the road, but here are your winners. Drum roll, please. <laughs> The first winner of the Discover the Next Evolution in Your Business with the Master of Direct Marketing, Ryan Scala, is Casey with AdornHome.com from Colorado. Now, I was just reading this comment here, and I love how Casey said, uh, hey, I'm in Colorado, so I'm not much of a threat. And you know, I'm thinking maybe that's why Ryan uh, picked him. <laughs> I'm sure it helped. So. Uh, Casey is the first winner. Uh, Casey, go ahead and shoot us an email and we will set up your 20-minute consultation with Ryan and myself. And our second winner is Blake Stevens from NoCoHouseBuyers.com in Fort Collins, Colorado. So once again, we have another Coloradoan. Uh, I don't know how you, if that's right, but <laughs> so we have Denver and Fort Collins. Shoot, maybe we'll just make a trip up there. Okay, not really. But so uh, if you guys could both uh, email uh, me and or, and or Mark, my uh, my web guy, as he loves to be called, at info at housewifinghq.com, we will go ahead and set up a time for those 20-minute consultations. And we are really uh, looking forward to talking to you guys. And for the rest of you, you know, I hope Ryan doesn't hear this part, but you know, maybe I'll, uh, I'm pretty sure Ryan's going to be pretty open in these calls. So I'll be sure to sneak in a couple things into the podcast, a few of his little, uh, secrets. So <laughs> I'll write onto the Robert Fragoso competition. And your winner is Chris Music from the San Francisco Bay area. So Chris, uh, go ahead and shoot us an email, info at housewifinghq.com, and we will be in touch, and you will be joining uh, Robert and myself. We'll set up a time for you to come down and join us at a Clippers game at the Staples Center in the Hyde Lounge, where you'll be networking and dining and watching some basketball with some of you know California's top house flippers. And uh, it'll be really cool. We'll uh, introduce you to everybody and do some networking and mingling and do some talking. See what your plans are for this year and see what we can do to, to help you really, uh, I don't want to say take your business to the next level. Ryan, ugh, every time I say that now, he's got me thinking about it. So <laughs> uh, to really uh, improve your, your house flipping business. So really looking forward to that. Thank you, everybody uh, who participated. There was some great feedback from both Ryan and Robert on the comments under those show notes. So if you go to housewifinghq.com slash episode 11 and housewifinghq.com slash episode 12, uh, you can read those comments. It's great feedback. The show notes at the end of each, the comment section at the end of each podcast episode really provide a ton uh, of valuable content. So I encourage you to go through and and read those, and uh, you'll learn a ton from those as well. 
Okay, other than that, just a quick reminder to head on over to HouseofMingHQ.com slash mastermind to sign up to get more information on the webinar we are planning on having next Thursday about the mastermind group uh, we have coming up. And we will send you out the specifics on that as we get more details finalized. And we're looking forward to that. And we're looking forward to many more things to come here on the House Flipping HQ podcast. We will see you in episode 20 uh, next week. Until then, happy house flipping. This has been the House Flipping HQ podcast. Your ultimate house flipping resource for intelligent real estate investing and financial freedom. Check out amazing tutorials, blogs, how-tos, and other inspiring podcasts with house flipping experts at houseflippinghq.com. Houseflippinghq.com.